Good morning, everybody. It's Friday. That means it's backpatting day. We're glad to have you patting yourself on the back for the weekend that yawns before you. Yep, this is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as uh, Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. Come join us. The message this Sunday, church starts at 1030. The message this Sunday is from near or far or my life is an alien. Yeah, comes from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, <laughs> verse 11. And if you're scratching your head, you have to come to church, figure out what the heck I'm talking about. Uh, if you've got a church home, go to church at your home church. If you don't, if you don't go to church and if you don't have a church home, if you're looking Come to Five Forks. We'll be glad to see you there. Oh, all right. Um, how about let's start with some good news on a Friday. By the way, we're going to have Senator Josh Kimbrell at 745 this morning, so you might want to uh, stay tuned for that. Um, there is a magazine called Global Epi Epidemiology. That's the name of the magazine. Doesn't that sound like something that you would just have to have coming to your house every month, global epidemiology. And um, it's, it's about what you would expect. It's a, it's a very wonkish, uh, elite, highbrow educational journal. Now, we need wonkish, elite, highbrow educational journals, believe it or not, uh, because the researchers write their scholarly conclusions in there. And what would we do? If, if we couldn't go find that research and quote it for our research when we want to become wonkish elites. I mean, you know, um, I, um, I don't talk a whole lot about my doctorate from North Greenville University because I don't have a doctorate from North Greenville University, which is a good reason for me not to talk about it. But I have done everything to get a doctorate from North Greenville University except complete my dissertation. It's called ABD. Sounds like a disease. It's kind of, it is kind of a disease. It's all but dissertation. And there are a lot of people that end up ABD because they just, it so happened that I was starting my dissertation right when COVID hit. And my dissertation had to do with a lot of interviewing. And so it, I got sidetracked. I couldn't do it. I had to put it off and I just never went back to it. So that's kind of what happened. But in the in the preparation, writing all these papers and you know my proposal and all that stuff, uh, I had to go to these wonkish, highbrow, educational elitist articles, and so I'm I'm glad that they actually exist. Well, the reason I'm glad this one exists is because two Harvard researchers, Brandon Case and Ying Chen, they're they're as I said they're Harvard researchers they work at Harvard University, which means they have gray matter to spare because you don't, you don't get a job at Harvard, you know, if, uh, if you don't have some gray matter. And they've done research among female nurses. Now, that's not particularly interesting because if you're a magazine that deals with epidemiology, which is 
an analysis of health, uh, tracking of diseases, looking at the overall health and well-being of, of, of the world, obviously, because global epidemiology. So they're, they're concerned about everybody's health. Then it's not that unusual that you would find an article with this title. And, and by the way, um, these article titles are laboriously cumbersome. They're just they're really long. Uh, because they have to, they they initially they are the statement that's used to give a rationale for the research. So when you read the name of the of the article, it's giving you sort of the statement as to why we went out and did research. What were we trying to find out? Because when you're doing a search, if you want to find this research to add to research that you're doing, that you're going to write something, then you want all this stuff in the title so that your search will snag it. And also so that you can communicate to everybody who looks at the article, essentially this is this is the statement that we're using um, to describe what the article is about. So here's the title. Marital, marital transitions during earlier adulthood and subsequent health and well-being in mid to late life among female nurses and outcome-wide analysis. Okay, so let, let let's go back. This is in global epi- epidemiology. I know I'm just making your Friday, right? This is the kind of stuff that, you know, I was hoping I was going to get up and tune my radio to Dr. Tony Beam, and he's going to be talking about epidemiology and this kind of stuff. But let, let, let's break that down. Marital transitions during earlier adulthood. Now, what that means is, is they tracked female nurses. And and why female nurses? Well, because this is a medical community and female nurses are there every day at the hospital. And so they have access to them. Uh, They don't have to go around and and put ads and papers and say, come and be part of this study and all of that. They can just, they've got a, a ready crop of people to study. So that's why that's probably one of the reasons they picked them. Marital transitions during earlier adulthood means we looked at these female nurses and we compared the ones that got married early to ones that did not get married or got married early and divorced. Okay. Now, subsequent health and well-being in mid to late life. In other words, we asked the question, does being married and being happily married make life better if you get married earlier what does that mean for you in the midpoint of your life and later in life so what can we find out and what they found out was biblical now it may not be you know they i don't think they started out and they said okay genesis says that marriage is ordained by god and that marriage is important for societal health and cultural advancement I, I, I don't believe anybody said that. But as they did this study, that's what they discovered. Listen to, listen to some of these quotes. Quote, this is how the uh, article begins. Marriage represents the keynote institution, excuse me, keystone institution for most societies. Now, let's stop right there. That was said by an anthropologist, Joseph Henrik. So, in other words, Joseph Henrik, before he even thinks about what does marriage mean to nurses who get married early and what benefits they have, he starts out by saying marriage represents 
the keystone institution for most societies. What what is keystone? The most important, the foundational, the the thing that they can't do without. I mean, if you if you don't have the keystone, uh, all the other stones come tumbling down. So it's a foundational truth to this anthropologist who studies these things that marriage is incredibly important in in every society. He goes on, quote, and may be the most primeval of human institutions. Now, primeval, this is a researcher's way of saying it's really old. And when he says it may be the most primeval, he's saying it is the oldest institution that is out there that has an effect on society. And that that would be marriage. Yeah, it's old, all right. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2 and chapter 3, first the opening chapters of the Bible. He went on, marriage in its diverse forms arguably remains our species' most durable solution to the interconnected problems of nurturing children, socializing sexuality, and furnishing social support in many parts of the world. Okay, this this is an anthropology. This is not a Bible preacher. This is not a theologian. This is a guy who we don't know what he believes. He may not even believe in God, but he knows this. When you observe marriage in all of its forms, for us, for human beings, our species, I mean, this is you know, the way these people talk. I mean, who goes around and going, you know, says, oh, there's one of my species over there. That's good to see him or her. No, we don't, we don't talk that. But they talk like that in academic jargon sometimes. So marriages in its diverse forms arguably remains our species' most durable solution to the interconnected problems. This, this is, now, this is where this starts to break down into a brilliant statement. I mean, it kind of goes from what to, oh, my gosh, because the interconnected problems, what are they? Nurturing children, socializing sexuality, social support. So in other words, we if, if we're going to be successful in society, they're saying this without saying it out loud. This is kind of a, a byproduct. Nurturing children is incredibly important to that. What does it mean to socialize sexuality? Well, it means to keep sexuality within the bounds of a society that makes it productive and not destructive. And marriage does that. It it helps keep sexuality, which it really is, and you know, the Bible says Satan is a roaring lion. I'm going to borrow that for a second, and I'm going to say that sexuality can be a roaring lion seeking whom to devour unless it stays in its place. You keep sexuality hemmed in, to marriage, and it's an incredibly beautiful, beneficial thing to health and well-being. When it gets out, it's destructive. So what about social support? What does that mean? Well, it simply means that marriage is one of the key elements of social interaction, emotional, psychological support. I mean, the kinds of things that all of us need for human flourishing, for our species to flourish. Gene's on the phone. Go ahead, Gene. Yes, Dr. B., before you continue with your critical analysis of this paper, I, as a listener, 
uh, need to um, have a question to ask. Did these authors define the criteria for marriage? Yeah. Are they uh, are they using anything any any relationship that that's called a marriage or marriage, no. or were they dealing with male female uh, uh, no. matrimony as marriage, excluding no. other forms of marriage? No, they're that's talking. Important. I, it it is important, but it it they did define marriage as being between a male and a female traditionally, as in going back as they said, it is a primeval institution meaning that it came along very early in our, they would have said, evolution probably. Uh, but they, they talked about male and female exclusively because a lot of the analysis that they did is how does it affect the male, how does it affect the female. And it turns out that the benefits for marriage are actually better for the male than they are for the female. And we can talk oh, about it. Without a doubt. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's, what well they, that's what they said, yeah. Yeah, that's well. That's that's an. I, I mean, this might have been a, a bit of a perceived as a cynical question, but given the time that we're in, we need to define those terms for the uh, secular world. Yeah, thanks, Gene. I appreciate it. Yeah, th- look, this is marriage between a man and a woman. They talk to these female nurses to find out about those those types of of relation that type of relationship within the context of, context of marriage. So the study specifically looks at the impact of early adult marriage on the quality of life of people as they age together in a state of marriage. So, quote, in addition to its social effects, marriage also shapes individual health and well-being. A large body of literature on prevalent marital status has suggested that married individuals often have lower rates of mortality and better physical and mental outcomes, such as lower risk of cardiovascular diseases or depression, as compared to those not currently married, with the association being stronger in men than women. Now, this is not this is not really hard to understand, right? I mean, if our wives didn't remind us about our health, we'd probably let ourselves go. So that's just kind of a male thing. It matters that when you have someone looking out for you, someone who loves you and wants the best for you, not because of what you can do for them, but because of how they feel about you. You know, we can take this back to Ephesians, where the call in Ephesians that reverses the curse of marital strife that is established in Genesis as part of the fall. When we get to Ephesians, we discover that men are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. And so in, in marriage, you're always thinking about the benefit of your partner, not your benefit. You're putting your partner's needs before your own. Your married, your, your husband or your wife is putting th- th- uh, your needs ahead of their own. And so guess what happens? The needs get met. See, if you go into a marriage and you say to yourself, okay, um, I expect my wife to meet my needs. And if she doesn't meet my needs, then uh, the marriage is going to be over. If she doesn't, if she doesn't um, you know, do what I want, if she doesn't keep the house the way I want it, if she doesn't cook meals that I like, if she doesn't raise the children, I mean, 
You can have any kind of list you want, but you could just say to yourself, my wife has to meet my needs, and I'm going to be thinking every day about how my wife meets my needs and whether she does or not. That marriage is going to fail. I'm just going to tell you, if you walk down the aisle with that in mind, if, if you're standing there as a man next to your best man and you see this beautiful woman appear in a wedding gown walking down the aisle and your first thought is, boy, I, I sure hope this woman's going to be able to meet my needs, you, you're going to get divorced. And the reason is because when you focus on whether or not you are having your needs met, most of the time, you're, I mean, you're going to come up with your list is going to be de a deficit to some degree because that's the only thing you think about. And while you're thinking about your needs getting met, she's thinking about her needy needs getting met, and neither one of you are meeting each other's needs, and the marriage falls apart. But now let's put the biblical model into place. Let's say the man is loving his wife and putting her first, and the wife is loving her husband and putting him first, and there every day you're thinking, am I meeting my wife's needs? Am I blessing her? Am I helping her? Am I encouraging her? Does she know how much I love her? And you know, whatever those list of needs is, you get to know the woman that you marry, you'll find out what her needs are, and you think all the time about meeting those needs. And the same thing happens with her. She gets to know you and for, for, you know, she's constantly thinking about, okay, am I meeting the needs of my husband? I love him. I, I want him to be happy and I want him to feel satisfied. I want him to feel like that he's important. I, I mean, all the things we, we think about the top five needs of men and the top five needs of women. Uh, Denise and I have done uh, marriage counseling and, and, and even uh, spoke at marriage conferences before where we talk about those things, top five needs of a man, top five needs of a woman. They're very different. There are very few things on the list that cross, okay, because it, it, men and women are that different. And so if, if the men understand the women's list and the women understand the men's list and they're both concentrating on the opposite person's list of things, guess what happens? Everybody's needs get met and you've got a happy marriage. And that's one of the way, ways Denise and I have been married for 42 years and, and we have a really good marriage. So early marriage has beneficial health results, marriage, particularly early marriage, has a lifelong impact on our health for good. We need to th what we need to think about here is what Dr. Al Mohler calls the unity of the goods. Now, that's actually a term that you'll hear in theological discussions. What it means is that marriage is a good in and of itself, but it contains a lot of other goods. It leads to good in other ways beyond just the marital bond. For example, fellowship between a man and a wife, relationships that they, the relationship they enjoy, including mutual emotional support, commonality of purpose, marriage, happy marriages that are long-lived and have health benefits have come to realize that two people are together because they have a they have a common purpose. Now notice I didn't say common interest, okay? I like to ride motorcycles. Denise, that's the uh-uh. She doesn't that's not fun for her. It scares her. So 
you know, climbing on the back of a motorcycle is supposed to be fun. If it's not fun, she doesn't need to do it. If it's fun for me, yeah. So that this is, you know, that that's, I, I, but I'm talking about not common interest, common purpose. Our common purpose to be parents, to love our children, to love and care for our grandchildren, to worship God together, to pray together, to study God's word together, to grow together, to um, have a depth of understanding of each other that gives the emotional, psychological, and every other kind of support to one another in life. So those those are the those are the health health benefits. This comes not only to the couple, but their family, and then to the entire nation and ultimately civilization. So marriage rightly ordered brings about a lot of moral goods. If you've got if you've got solid marriages in a country, you've got a strong country. You put all those countries together, you've got a civilization. You know, we talk about Western civilization. One of the reasons Western civilization became so prominent, so uh, influential in world history is because it be, it was built on marriages, families, passing on values to children. Quote, this is, a, this is the last statement. Listen to this. Our findings added to an already extensive literature showing the value of marriage ought to serve as a wake-up call for a society in significant denial about this crucial element of flourishing. What to do about the problem? Politicians should implement and fund policies and interventions that promote healthy marriages. Our cultural and economic elite should preach what they practice. Now, let me tell you what that means. The cultural and economic elite in our society, for the most part, are happily married people. That is, people that have longevity in their marriages. So they should advocate in public for the benefits of marriage even as they enjoy them in their private life. And here, here's another thing that we, we didn't emphasize, but it, it, it deserves being emphasized. Um, young couples bond with other young couples who are going through the same life stages as they are. So Another thing that marriage does is strengthen the fiber of community by bringing couples together as they share wisdom about parent about parenting. They each ask and answer each other's questions about the relationships within marriage. It creates lifelong friendships based on mutual experience and shared wisdom. So the bottom line, here it is. Get married early. Stay married and you'll live longer, healthier, and happier lives. I mean, I, I, and I, I believe that is absolutely true. There's not much wrong in our world today that can't be fixed by strong, happy, healthy marriages that lead to strong families. We live in a pretty violent, um, a, a pretty volatile world and that played out again yesterday. The U.S. military carried out several precision airstrikes in Syria on Thursday, reportedly killing eight Iranians in retaliation for a drone strike. Now, you're, you heard that correctly. The military, U.S. military, carried out these strikes in Syria. But they killed Iranians because Syria and Iran are working together for 
their terrorist goals. I mean, they're, they're helping each other obtain those goals. It was in retaliation for a drone strike from Iranian forces conducted earlier in the day on a coalition base that killed one American. The Defense Department said Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps crashed a UAV into a building near Hasaka in northeast Syria at approximately 1.38 p.m. local time, leaving one U.S. contractor dead. The attack also wounded five U.S. service members and another U.S. contractor. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, an opposition war monitor, two of the American strikes killed at least eight Iranian fighters. A U.S. airstrike at an, at an arms depot in Harabash in the eastern city of Deir el-Zwar left six Iranian-backed fighters dead. A second U.S. bombing at a post near the town of Mahadeen killed another two fighters, according to the observatory, whose reporting relies on local Syrian contacts. U.S. intelligence assessed the UAV that crashed into a coalition base, which killed the U.S. contractor, was of Iranian origin, so President Biden authorized military to retaliate. Quote, at the direction of, the pres of President Biden, I authorize U.S. Central Command forces to conduct precision airstrikes tonight in, in eastern Syria against facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, said Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. The airstrikes were conducted in response to today's attack, as well as a series of recent attacks against coalition forces in Syria by groups affiliated with the Revolutionary Guards. So there you go. Um, yes, we have some American military still in Syria, but they're located in these military post, uh, not military post, uh, I'm sorry, they're, they're located in, um, oh, what's the name? I'm looking for it here. I just read it a minute ago. Uh, obs they're observation posts. They're, it's the coalition that pushed ISIS out of Syria, they still have observation post within the country to monitor any kind of return or upsurge of ISIS in that country. And, of course, to report back what's going on with the Syrian government, uh, who are their allies, who are they making nice with, that kind of thing. So for a contractor to be killed, who could have been there for any number of reasons, could be uh, working out of that observation uh, base, as someone who is helping rebuild certain parts of Syria. I mean, it could have been uh, a contractor that was providing security. But whatever the reason, it was an American citizen who was killed, and now the Biden administration has retaliated and gone against where they believe the Syrian drone came from, the military base. So, I, you know, look, I, I applaud this. I, you cannot let countries like Iran— just go and kill people, conduct an air war, take a drone, crash it into a building, and kill a bunch of people, at least a, an American contractor, and, and just let that pass. So what do you do? You find out where the drone came from, you go in, you take them out. And that's what the U.S. military did. Um, I'm glad President Biden was willing to make that call. 
you know, it's it's amazing. He's he's come a long way from the time when he was the lone dissenting voice who didn't want President Obama to go after Osama bin Laden. Now we've got a President Biden, now that he's president, saying, no, we can't allow the Syrian army, the 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 guard, the, um, to, to be able to do this with impunity. The Revolutionary Guard has to be kept in check. So kudos. I mean, I, I think this is now I know a bunch of people are going to call me a warmonger. But this is not war. OK, this is this is a an aggressive action taken against the United States that was met by an appropriate response. And we need to do that or we'll just get pushed around all over the world. And right now, when China and Russia both both think that we're just an easy lunch meal at the moment, um, we need to be taking steps like this to demonstrate to the world that the United States is still capable of defending itself and will if provoked. That's one of the reasons that I think it's important for the United States to continue to support the Ukraine war. I mean, that the Ukrainians were minding their own business and Putin decided to take them. And you can't if, if well, again, the United States had a treaty with Ukraine that we said we would defend them if they were attacked because they gave up their nuclear weapons in 1995. And so the United States needs to keep its word, but we also need to knock back against bloody dictators like Putin who decide that they're just going to go take territory. And it, and it fascinates me that there are conservatives in this country that think Putin is some kind of Christian hero. I mean, I hear that junk all the time. Well, not all the time, but I hear it from time to time. That, you know, we Vladimir Putin, he's a strong man. He's like Trump. He's like, we, we, we like somebody that's decisive. And he doesn't. You know, Vladimir Putin doesn't put up with any of this transgender stuff in Russia, so we need to support him when he goes in and invade Ukraine. That's ridiculous. Ukraine's a sovereign country, and Vladimir Putin wants it. He wanted Crimea. He took it. He thought he could take Ukraine. But the Ukrainian people, turns out, are people who fight for their country. You know, we've been through this thing. We've, we've seen this movie before where we go in, we prop people up just like we did in Afghanistan, and then we hope that the training that they get from the United States military, the best military training in the world, will turn these um, locals into razors that can defend their own country. But as soon as problems started in Afghanistan, and President Biden was told this, that this was going to happen, the, the Afghanistan army just melted away. They switched sides because they could pretty much read the tea leaves, and without the American backup, they knew that they were going to lose. So what did they do? They just they laid down their weapons. They just let the Taliban march right through, or they joined the Taliban because they wanted to be on the side of the people that were going to have the ability to lop heads off. So... You know, in, a, in, in Ukraine, it was a totally different story. I mean, these people are fighting for their homeland, and they're fighting fiercely. What they need is the stuff to fight with, and the United States has been providing that, along with Europe. Uh, tanks coming from Germany, 
other countries contributing weapons, arms, money to defend Ukraine. And I know a lot of people don't like that. I know there are plenty of conservatives that, Dad, this conspiracy theories about Vladimir Zelensky and about uh, how Putin is the real good guy here. Um, and that's just a bunch of nonsense. I mean, come on. I, we, we do not need an aggressive Russia. Look, what's ha- look what just happened. You, Xi Jinping goes to Moscow and they make some kind of forever friendship pact between Russia and China. Those are two of our primary global enemies. Does anybody think that's a good thing? I mean, weakening Vladimir Putin right now is a good idea since he thinks it's a good idea to get in bed with Xi Jinping. The United States does not need, at this moment, a war against two of the military powers in that part of the world. Now, I'm not saying we can't win that war. I think the American people, once provoked and and understand that something that is a threat, um, they would get behind the military, the country would turn out whatever is needed for us to be victorious. But, I mean, there's no guarantee when you're taking on military powers of that magnitude, and, and hopefully our allies would step up and help us. But one of the ways to stop that is to project power, to demonstrate to the, to the Chinese that the Russians, when they come in with their top technologically advanced military equipment, their best trained soldiers, and the Ukrainian army is, is, is able to hold them off or to kick them out, buoyed by American support, American technology and weapons, that says to Xi Jinping, you know, I might ought to think again before I decide to move against Taiwan because it looks like the United States is not the paper tiger maybe that we thought they were. Okay, uh, Senator Kimbrell is going to call in at 8.05 this morning. Just been texting back and forth when we thought it would be 7.45, but it's going to be better for him for 8.05. All right, I, w- I want to talk uh, for just a minute here about TikTok. Um, yesterday, you know, there was a, a hearing on uh, TikTok. We had the executive, the, the guy that basically runs TikTok, uh, come and testify before and do kind of do the dance before Congress. And there, there's several takeaways that we need to get from this. Look, most people think that social media is a nuisance or a blessing or it's a curse. I mean, there's there's really no one that is neutral about social media. And I, I just want to tell you, for young girls in particular, it's a curse. For a lot of people, it's a curse because it becomes an, an obsession. But when it comes to and, – and there are benefits of social media. I mean, I – I love hearing about people's anniversaries and birthdays and job promotions and vacations and things like that. I mean, you know, I I get to feel like I get to celebrate along with them. But when we when we're talking about TikTok, we're talking about an app that is used by 150 million Americans. And it is controlled by the Chinese government. Now, yes, is it a private company? in China that owns TikTok? Yes, it is. 
But here's what you need to know. There are no private companies in China. I mean, they're, it, they, it, all companies are controlled by the Chinese government. Not directly, but ByteDance, which is the name, B-Y-T-E Dance, ByteDance, is the name of the company that owns TikTok. Chu told the committee in his opening remarks, 60% of the company is owned by global institutional investors, 20% is owned by the founder, and 20% owned by employees around the world. ByteDance has five board members. Three of them are, are American, he said. Now, TikTok itself is not available in mainland China. We're headquartered in Los Angeles and in Singapore, and we have 7,000 employees in the United States today. So saying all that is fine. Here's the problem with it. There are no companies in China that the Chinese don't look over their shoulder or have some kind of control. The Chicoms are. This is not a. China is not America. It's not where a person can go out and grow a company. And of course, even in America, there are the fingers of the federal government through a whole host of federal regulations and hoops that you have to jump through. But for the most part, the federal government doesn't come in and tell you exactly how you have to run your company. Nor does it glean information with you from you without your knowledge. Now, am I saying that never happens? No. But I am saying that that's not the way that it's supposed to work. It's supposed to work that way in China, and it works that way very well. So TikTok is – let me give you just an example. In China – now, it, you know, they talk about it doesn't work. It, the, the TikTok is not available in mainland China. Well, yeah, because the Chinese know that it's destructive. But in places where, where Chinese people have access to it, it promotes mathematics in young people. You know what it promotes in America? Transgender ideas, endless video games, and suicide. I mean, it's, it's designed to lead to the, the decadence of a generation. It's designed to distract Americans into non-intellectual types of exercises that, I mean, just, just really causes all kinds of problems in society. But the other thing that it does is it stores data. And that data can be used against the people who are using TikTok. And that's why the government is, th is thinking about forcing a sale that TikTok, if it's going to continue to work in the United States, is going to have to be owned by an American company. And they're going to have to cut the Chinese out or they're going to ban it. And, you know, if, if this was an American company and they decided to sell, they could sell. But because it's a Chinese company... ByteDance can't just sell to an American company without the Chinese government approving. Now, one of the things about this that's very important is that we take it seriously, okay? Republicans are taking it seriously. They're looking at TikTok and trying to determine, you know, is there a threat here? But Democrats in particular, Representative Jamal Bowman from New York, I mean, he thinks this is some kind of joke. 
he thinks he thinks the reason that we need to you know that he's on TikTok and and he thinks the pathway as a representative to being popular is to be considered popular by young people to use their lingo and to make fun of Republicans as not understanding it. So just just keep in mind what we're talking about here. TikTok is a national security threat. It is a national security question. They are gleaning information about Americans and about American life and society and maybe even military secrets, whatever they can glean. They're gleaning it through TikTok, and they're using TikTok to undermine the quality of life that we have and particularly to drive young people to depression. Now, now that I've described all that, does that sound like kind of serious business to you? But not to Jamal Bowman. He thinks it's some kind of joke. This is what he had to say about it. You know, Robert, I just realized something. Republicans ain't got no swag. That's why they want to ban, ban TikTok. <laughs> Republicans ain't got no swag. That's the problem. Yeah. Okay. So we've got a serious national security problem. And we've got a Democrat sitting over here. Well, the real problem is Republicans. They ain't got no swag. They, they don't understand. You know, you, you, you Republicans, you need to stop worrying about things like national security, mundane things like what TikTok is doing to influence the thinking of American youth, uh, what TikTok may be doing with personal information that people are using. Don't be thinking about all that stuff. That's mundane stuff. That, that's not what we need to concentrate on. We need to talk, talk about swag. We need to talk about the fact that Republicans, that you know, they're they're not with it. They don't they don't have, you know, they don't have the knowledge. They're they're just looking for for something to ban. They're just evil people going around. Now you know what's evil. Evil is knowing, and hearing testimony from TikTok. That is, I mean, when if you listen to some of this hearing yesterday, and and I'm going to play you a cut or two after we talk to Senator Kimbrell at the top of the after news at the top of the hour, in the second segment in the eight o'clock hour, I'm going to play you some of these clips from this thing yesterday, and you're going to see that this is serious business that we're dealing with, unless you're Jamal Bowman, and then you make fun. That's how you do. That's. To think that we've reached a place in this country politically where one of the political parties would would stoop to that kind of juvenile statement during a serious hearing about a national security issue, that ought to tell you everything you need to know about the Democrat Party right now, where their head is, what their thinking is, what they're embracing, and what they're refusing to see.